Morning, guys. Morning. It's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to take a hold of that and open with me to the passage our friend Nathan just read, John chapter 1. This morning, we're looking at verses 35 through 51. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, uh, the Word of God, we'd love to gift you with one. There are some Gospel Transformation Bibles. Uh, there's just a plain ESV Bible. I think there's even a really cool adventure, teen adventure Bible that's, that's in there in the, in the bar uh, off here on the room to my left. So if you don't own a Bible, please take one. We'd love to gift you with one. We think the Bible is a great gift to us. We can learn about God and, and God speaks to us through His Word. So please take one as our gift to you. Uh, this will be the third week in our study through John. So to kind of provide you a brief context, if you've been out sick uh, last week or the week before that, I know there's been a lot of sickness going around. Uh, let me kind of just provide a brief context to catch you up to speed on, on where we've been and where we're going. Two weeks ago, Will opened our study by looking at the first 18 verses of the gospel according to John. The, the first 18 verses are called the prologue. And in those fir- first 18 verses, he taught us that the prologue was similar to the opening uh, song that you find in the movie Mary Poppins. In the opening song of Mary Poppins, all the kind of songs that you find in the movie are kind of jumbled together into one opening song. And in the prologue, John does a similar thing. He introduces us to the main themes and key ideas that we see throughout the whole book of John. Bearing witness, life, light, darkness, a man being sent from God, Jesus coming to his own people, but his own people not believing in him. Anyone who does believe in him, though, has the right to be, uh, receives the right to become a child of God, and they're born of God, not through the will of the flesh, nor the Son of Man. That's kind of the central verse that we looked at that first week. Will also showed us how John wrote this gospel so that others would believe in Jesus. He brought us to chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's where we get this whole idea of what we're titling our study, Written for Belief. It comes from John's own kind of purpose statement of this book that is written for belief. Uh, This idea, written for belief, I think is applicable not only to those who are uh, believers, already believers, they've already believed in Jesus, they've already found life in his name, and those who have not yet believed in Jesus. Because I think for the believer, this gospel, and and what I think this gospel will do as we study through it as a church, will encourage us in our belief. It'll strengthen our belief. It'll lead to greater life and joy in Jesus. And maybe for those who are not believing in Jesus, or they're skeptical or curious about the claims of Jesus, this, this book will provide an opportunity to learn about Jesus and learn what following Jesus means. So that's where we're going. I'm, I've loved already what we've studied so far. Uh, I can't wait to get into the rest of the book and, and study the whole book together. Uh, but that's where we've been. That's what we started with uh, two weeks ago. Last week, uh, we looked at uh, the witness of a guy named John the Baptist. Now, this is not, this is not a, a saying that this guy was Baptist, unlike he's, he's not Presbyterian or Lutheran or assemblies of God. That's just a name that, that this, this individual has come to be called because he was someone who baptized in the Jordan River. He was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. And uh, John is a guy who was an influential teacher. He was a famous figure in this time. So right out of the gate, the way the author John introduces us to John the Baptist is a way of trying to anchor and 
and solidify that proof. It's another evidence that, hey, this famous guy, this famous teacher who had influence in the time, he knew who Jesus was, and he bore witness to who he was. And, and that's, in fact, what he says in the last verse of the passage we looked at last week, John chapter 1, verse 34. This is John the Baptist saying, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And I, last week I tried to use an illustration of Right, you imagine you finding a fountain of youth in a water fountain in Saltwater State Park, which Carrie texted me. Uh, Carrie texted me during the week, and I guess there's some like sewage in oh, in water in Saltwater State Park. So, uh, which was kind of an ironic twist on the illustration. Uh, I had a good laugh afterwards. But the point being, uh, if you found this fountain of fountain of youth, you would send emails, post on social media, invite your friends. Hey. There's life, and, and you can experience this if you drink. And similarly, that's what John is doing. He's inviting everyone and asking us, find life in this Jesus. And other people have also found life in this Jesus. So this week, we're looking at two different accounts of, of people following Jesus. In verses 35 through 42, uh, we will see that some of John the Baptist's own disciples start following Jesus. And then in verses 43 through 51, we'll see how Jesus went to Galilee and calls more disciples. I, I think these, these accounts are going to be very applicable uh, to our lives today and what it means to follow Jesus and be his follower. And I think it'll build out what we talked about last week, that, that all of Jesus' disciples, anyone who calls himself a Christian, is not only a witness to see Jesus, beholding him, but a witness uh, for him. In other words, talking about him, being his witness to a watching world. So let's turn now to our text. First, uh, chapter one of the gospel according to John, starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, this is the same confession that John made the day before. John records in verse 29, when John saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in, in the midst of our culture, I, I can just imagine someone saying, or, or even in our church culture, really, John, same message as last week? I mean, nothing new here? That's not anything new. You, you could, I, I heard one pastor, as he was talking about this, he, he used the illustration of, you couldn't even throw in a, a new story or a new illustration. I mean, it's literally the same words. And in our society, that can be so enslaved and nabbered to what's new and, and what's, uh, what's latest and greatest the claim of the ancient historic Christian confession is that we have one message. Behold Jesus. Jesus is our message. He's the truth. And, and I think a faithful teacher and a faithful pastor is not someone who is trying to find new truths or showing you new revelations. There's someone who centers and highlights the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Continually centering his message and highlighting the work of Jesus, beholding, calling others to behold Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now, if God moves you to a different community of faith, then with the Mountain Church, or uh, you, uh, you decide to move on to a different community of faith, I pray this is the one thing that you were looking for in a church. Not great music, not a, a hip pastor or a charismatic personality, but does the church highlight the person and work of Christ? Do they sing about Jesus? Do they proclaim him? Is that the center of their church? And I think this is the confession of John, and this is the confession of a faithful church. This is not something we want to ever move past. But as John the Baptist's disciples hear him make this confession, they follow Jesus. 
when two of John's disciples were with him, they hear him make this public confession, they decide to follow Jesus. Now, uh, maybe you know what the term disciple means, but a, a disciple is a term that simply means learner, student. Uh, it means pupil. A disciple in Jesus' time was one who traveled with a teacher. He was like an apprentice. Uh, we see this idea of a disciple in some uh, job fields. Uh, even some job fields use that title apprentice. Like I can think of like in carpentry or, or plumbing. I, I think in electrical field, they use the, the term apprentice. Uh, my first job out of high school was uh, working at a, a tire shop called Les Schwab. And I was throwing tires around and putting on brakes. Uh, and although it formally wasn't called this, I started as an apprentice. I was following someone around. They were showing me, this is how you change a tire. This is how you torque lug nuts. This is how you talk with customers. Uh, this is what you don't do. And uh, sooner or later, this is how you buff the inside of a tire and put a patch on. Sooner or later, after I followed uh, someone, I, I was released to do it on my own. And then because we, we were uh, in Georgetown and in Seattle and, you know, wages aren't great, uh, there was always people coming through. And sooner or later, I started training people. And I became uh, someone who was training an apprentice. I was given uh, new employees to train to have and as apprentice. And, and similarly, in, in Jesus' time, a rabbi would have apprentices. They would follow. They would have disciples. They would follow this rabbi. They'd walk behind the rabbi, and they'd learn from this rabbi so that eventually they could be sent out and, and disciple others. Traditionally, just like uh, we see in this passage, the students of a Jewish rabbi would, would physically follow. They would walk behind the rabbi. So as Jesus is walking by John the Baptist, and, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, I can imagine the disciples that were with John just, There he is. All right. And they just start walking, following him. And, and it kind of feels weird to be over the, this far on the stage. I, I don't usually come over here. <laughs> Like new territory. <laughs> Look at this. Yeah. <laughs> they start following Jesus. And Jesus turns behind him and says, what are you seeking? And they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. That little description of that phrase, it was about the 10th hour, is, is probably an indication that this was an eyewitness account, that it has that kind of detail listed there. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew's the one who starts following Jesus. He finds his own brother, Simon, and tells him, we found the Christ, the Messiah, the one to this long-awaited figure who would be the savior of the people of Israel. He brings him to Jesus. Jesus looks at him and, and tells him his name and then renames him. He says, you'll be Cephas, which is an Aramaic term, which means rock. In the Greek, it would be the term Petros, which we get the term Peter. You will be called Peter. And that's the first account that we see in, in verses 35 through 40, 42. Two of John's disciples, they, they see Jesus. He's walking by. John calls out, behold, the Lamb of God. They follow Jesus. One of them is Andrew. Andrew finds his own brother, Simon, brings Simon to Jesus. He's renamed Peter. The next account begins in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This is a little bit different than the, the two previous accounts, isn't it? Before it was 
They followed Jesus because of John the Baptist's confession, and Simon followed Jesus because uh, Andrew, his own brother, brought him to Jesus. And in this case, Jesus is calling him directly with his direct words. He's finding Philip, and he's calling him. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, in this time in rabbinic practice, this was out of the, the norm. This was not the cultural usual. In, in those times, the, the student would find the rabbi and ask to be the apprentice, ask to be the student. But Jesus is not a typical rabbi. He is the one who is finding and calling others to follow him. This prepares what, and he reminds his disciples of this, as, as John later records in John f- chapter 15, verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus is a different kind of rabbi. He chooses his disciples. And similar to Andrew, who went right after he finds Jesus, Philip does the same as recorded in the next couple of verses. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip here is drawing an important uh, truth and highlighting something that's important for us, that there was one in, in what it says here, the Moses, what Moses wrote in the law and also the prophets, this seems to be an expression referring to the whole Old Testament. So Philip knows that there was one recorded throughout the, the Old Testament scriptures that they pointed and looked forward to one, one person who would come, one Messiah or one Christ. They, they pointed to a long-awaited figure, a deliverer who would come. And Philip is connecting that, that all of this Old Testament scripture, what Moses wrote in the law and the prophets is all pointing and being fulfilled in this Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, this son of Joseph. And, and this is the claim of the author John, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. He is the one which all of that pointed to. It's Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth. This becomes a central preaching of the apostles as recorded in Acts. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we see in the Old Testament. He is the one that the prophets longed to see. And Philip says that it is this Jesus, this son of Joseph, this Jesus of Nazareth, this would have been the two ways you identified someone in, in this time, where they were from and who their dad was. This Jesus of Nazareth, this son of Joseph. And Nathaniel replies, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I, I don't know exactly the kind of prejudice that might have been around in, in this time. I, I know that Nazareth was a, a small, insignificant town. It was kind of podunk. Uh, one scholar wrote that there's no kind of in the Old Testament, there's no mention of Nazareth. It's not even important at all. I mean, maybe it would be culturally equivalent to us saying, like, can, can anything good come from White Center? You know, or... <laughs> I don't know. Yelm? <laughs> and what's, notice how Philip replies here. He doesn't get into a debate with him here. He doesn't try to argue with him. He just has a simple and short invitation. He said to him, come and see. Now, this is the same phrase that Jesus said to the disciples of John who followed him. Come and you will see in verse 39. And this is the simple invitation Philip gives to his friend. Come and see. One commentator stated that these words are not only a challenge from Philip to Nathaniel, but they are an invitation by the author 
to us, the readers, to come and see, to take your skepticism and your curiosity and come and see Jesus. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, Nathan reminded me uh, earlier this morning that people named Nathanael are great individuals. Uh, so this is, why, this is why Jesus says this, in whom there's no deceit. So anyone named Nathan or Nathaniel, you can trust, always. I'm sure you know that, Megan. <clears throat> yeah. And Nathaniel was skeptical, and he was blunt, right? He asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? But Jesus says he didn't have deceit. And I think what he's getting at here is he didn't have duplicitous motives. He was willing to examine Jesus for himself. He didn't take that skepticism and, and not come to Jesus. He responds to Philip's invitation and he comes and sees. Nathanael says to him in verse 48, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus says, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. And and in my studies this week, it, it seems that there's kind of a consensus here that what John is highlighting, the point that he's making, is that Jesus here is displaying supernatural knowledge. He's able to see Nathaniel. And with that realization of this knowledge, Philip responds, and, or excuse me, Nathaniel responds in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, this, these are not normal phrases or terms that you would apply to any rabbi. These are unique terms for the Messiah. And this, this phrase, even the king of Israel, was a term used by Jews in Palestine to refer to the Messiah. So they're, they're affirming and, and, and speaking to the same thing that Andrew told Simon, we have found the Christ, the Messiah. That's what, that's what Philip has recognized here. And this is what Nathaniel has also seen. Rabbi, this Jesus is the son of God. Jesus answers him in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now notice another connection to seeing, right? Philip invited Nathaniel, come and see. Nathaniel came and saw. Jesus said, I saw you. Jesus promises you will see greater things than these. In other words, this supernatural knowledge Jesus displayed will prepare our, uh, Nathaniel to see greater things. And the greater things I think he's referring to here is the, is the great work of redemption on the cross. And this is, I think, what Jesus references next in verse 51. He says, truly, truly, which uh, is, is, translates the Hebrew, amen, amen. It's, it's a strong affirmation. It'd be like underlining or bolding a word for us or saying, hey, listen up. Right here, look at me, right? Or maybe when your parents used your middle name. What I'm about to say here is, is, is important. This is strong confirmation of what I'm saying. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you're unfamiliar uh, with, with the Bible, this, this illustration might not have as much meaning as, as if uh, you see what Jesus is connecting here to. This is a reference to... Uh, a story back to the first book of the Bible, a story recorded in the book of Genesis, chapter 28, where there was a man named Jacob who uh, is later renamed Israel. It's where the whole nation of Israel comes from. And he has a vision. And in this vision, uh, Jacob, who's later renamed Israel, he sees angels ascending and descending on this ladder. 
going up and coming down. This ladder reaches up to the heavens. And Jesus says, you will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you see the connection that Jesus is making here. Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the greater ladder. He is uh, the the greatest connection, the one in whom uh, humanity can commune with the divine. He is God made flesh, the one who is the mediator between God and man, come down to be the ultimate connection between heaven and earth. So when we examine what is this text saying, I think in summary, verses 35 through 51, uh, John, the gospel according to John, the author John is teaching us uh, two different stories of people following Jesus who are both uh, affirming and, and holding to the same truth that John is arguing in the prologue, that John the Baptist also qual- characterized and said that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. This is both what Simon and Andrew believe, and this is what Philip and Nathaniel, this is the same confession that they make. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the long-awaited one, the one to whom Moses and the prophets write. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, as we consider what this, what this passage means, in the sense of what principles from this text can we, can we take that are timeless and, and can be applied to our life, and, and how do we do that? And I think the point of the author, John, that he's making here is what we talked about in, in what the, te- the text say, that he is providing more evidence that, that Jesus is the Son of God, that just as John the Baptist made this claim that the first disciples are seeing this and they're confessing this, this is, this is what happens when people meet Jesus. They say this confession. But I think another reality we see in this passage is how Jesus calls his disciples and and what Jesus' disciples do in response to that call. So notice the ways in which Jesus calls his disciples, and and I'll characterize them, I'll I'll group them into four different categories. Number one, Jesus calls his disciples through the confession of John. We see that's that's what happened with Andrew and the one who was with him. Some people think that might have been John, the son of Zebedee. But through this confession of John the Baptist, people followed Jesus because of this public confession. So that might be one category. Second category, you see, is that Jesus calls the disciples through his own words. He finds Philip, and through his direct words, he says, follow me. And Philip follows. Third, you see, Jesus calls the disciples through the personal witness of new disciples, primarily through family. You see this in in Andrew. He finds his own brother, Simon. Simon. So that that witness, that calling is being passed through the family. And finally, the fourth category, Jesus calls the disciples uh, through the personal witness of a friend. So Jesus finds Philip, he calls him. Philip finds Nathanael and asks him, invites him, come and see Jesus. We found this one who uh, the scriptures refer to. This is Jesus, the son of Nazareth. Come and see. So the public confession of another, uh, the witness of family, of friends, and the direct word of Christ. And and when we think about these realities, I think we see principles here that shows us how Jesus continues to call disciples today. How this call of follow me and come and see and and believe in me, Jesus is still doing that today. And I think he's using these, these primarily these four kind of principles and ways. When we consider the confession of John, I think we can think about this as Jesus calling people to himself through the public proclamation of preaching, of conferences. Uh, The gospel is being proclaimed publicly. This might be at a church gathering or at a conference, ways in which, which Jesus says this. When we consider Jesus calling people through his own words, we can see the principle of Jesus calling people to himself through the Bible, through the word of God, the, the words that we have that are inspired in the Holy Scriptures. The Bible contains the very words of God as the author of Hebrews says. 
Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So in the Bible, in this book, we have the very words of Christ, the very words of Jesus. And this is how Jesus calls people to himself today, I think. He still does that. Thirdly, as we consider Jesus calling his disciples through Andrew, we see the principle that Jesus calls disciples through the family relationships, through the family dynamic, through faith being passed on through generations, through the nuclear biological family. And finally, as we consider Jesus calling disciples through Philip, we see the principle that Jesus calls disciples through friends, through the private witness of talking with your friends about Jesus, inviting them to come and see who he is and believe in him. Uh, so I kind of was curious, and, and I, I wanted to, by way of kind of showing each other in, in the room here as we're gathered together, the ways in which God has worked in our story, uh, kind of by way of standing up as I read one of these categories, uh, share how, how God uh, has used one of these ways in your life to call you to himself. So uh, summary in preaching, the public teaching, the proclamation, the heralding of the personal work of Jesus through a church gathering or through a conference, by way of standing up, who would say, this is how Jesus called you? You responded to a sermon. I would, if I could sit and stand up again, I would say that as well. Uh, my youth pastor preached the gospel, and although I did come from a family of faith, uh, and I, I, I said the sinner's prayer at age four, I really think it was when the gospel was proclaimed to me when I was 15. Uh, the Spirit came into my life. I, I saw Jesus. I loved him. My heart was changed. Everything, everything changed for me in that moment. Secondly, what about direct word of Jesus? Maybe you read the Bible, or you came across the Bible, or a book, uh, and, and you believed in Jesus. Yeah, my dad has a story. Uh, for whatever reason, he got an old Bible at Goodwill. And I think, Dad, you kept it in your truck. Uh, and one day, read it and believed. This is a story of a, a pastor I know in Auburn. Uh, he was an atheist. He was at a uh, state university. He was taking a class on Jewish history. And the, the assignment was read through the gospel according to John. He read it and believed in Jesus. It's awesome how that works, isn't it? Third, uh, see Jesus calling people to himself through the family relationship. So a lot more in this room. Thank you, guys. And finally, what about through a friend? Witness of a friend. Amen. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. Now, for the rest of you who maybe it was a combination of everything... Or you can't really decide, or maybe there was something else, and I didn't characterize it. If there was something else, I'd, I'd love to hear what that was. Uh, maybe a carrier pigeon brought a note to you. <laughs> I don't know why that was the first thing that came to my mind. But, but notice in our text, everyone has, everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a part to play in this story, in calling other people to Jesus. And a foundational principle that I think we see in this passage is the foundational principle for advancing the gospel is that Jesus makes disciples through new disciples. New followers of Jesus bear witness of Jesus to others. In turn, those new disciples repeat the process. The disciples that Jesus calls or are called to Jesus are the same disciples who call others to Jesus. And I think we see here what, we, what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is not only someone who follows Jesus, not only someone who becomes a learner, a pupil, an apprentice of him, but they are someone who invites others to follow him. 
They're someone who lives their life in such a way that they're inviting people to follow Jesus. They're bringing other people to Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. Now, uh, imagine a young man. He's aspiring to get a job, maybe start a family, buy a house. And he is invited by a family friend who is a plumber to become his apprentice. Now, this young man is excited about this opportunity. Uh, you can, there's a good career in, in plumbing. You can work your way up and have a good salary. Uh, I don't know if they still had this, but the pensions are nice. Um, so he's excited about that. He's excited for the opportunity to learn, possibly moving up, having a good career, uh, it, being able to settle down, buy a house. But upon starting his apprenticeship, uh, the young man asked this master plumber who he's able to work with and apprentice with, uh, so when do we start running wires? When do we start to do the electrical? Now, you can imagine the confused look that this master plumber would have, right? I, I think you signed up for the wrong field. We do plumbing. You're learning how to be a plumber, not an, not an electrician. I'm not going to teach you how to sell cars and balance checkbooks and do accounting. You, you, you become an apprentice to learn how to be a plumber. I think this indicates that he doesn't really realize what he signed up for. And similarly, friends, becoming a disciple of Jesus means we help other people follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. Mark Dever, who is a pastor of a church in Washington, D.C., and he helped create a ministry and organization to help strengthen churches and pastors. That's called Nine Marks. He says it like this. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus and you're not helping other people follow Jesus, I just don't know what you mean. In other words, Jesus gave his life for others. So not reaching out, not helping other people follow Jesus, I just don't know what you mean by that. Now maybe that seems strong, but I think it might indicate a reality that maybe we've lost sight of what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus does not mean that, that you just learn new material or you study books or you know about the Bible. It means that you are giving your life and orienting your life around others. Not that you have to be a master and know Jesus perfectly or, or know the Bible in, in the Greek and the Hebrew, but you should have a posture and an aim and a goal of your life to help other people follow Jesus. You should have an outward focus of your life. Becoming a disciple of Jesus means that we give ourselves to learning about him, seeking to become like him, and it means we give ourselves to helping others follow him. Disciples are those who behold and believe in Jesus and who bring to Jesus. Excuse me. Disciples are those who first behold and believe in Jesus. And secondly, those who bring others to Jesus. They invite others to come and see. Notice what Andrew and Philip did right after Jesus, like meeting Jesus, encountering him. Andrew first goes to his, find his brother. That's what I think it even says there. Uh, verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah. Then Philip says, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is what it means to be a disciple. But as we consider how we might resist this claim or resist this reality, I think in our natural state, we, we resist this truth on two fronts both in responding to Jesus' call and to helping other people see Jesus. So I don't think we have to be uh, very astute or 
a rocket scientist to see that, that people are not just flooding into this building to hear the gospel, right? We sent out a lot of flyers advertising for our study through the gospel of John. And the whole city of Des Moines did not come and hear the gospel. And that's not particularly a joke. That just shows that naturally we resist this call to Jesus. Jesus later says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Naturally, we resist Jesus. We resist, resist his, his truths and his invitations. The scriptures teach that no one understands, no one seeks God. So even the reality that, that someone is curious about God or even skeptical and they're like wanting to learn more and is an indication that God is at work in them, that the Spirit is working in their life somehow, that God is maybe drawing them in grace. I think a second way that we can resist this is, is even after we respond to that call and believe in Jesus, we kind of fall back to uh, how we were before Jesus saved us, and we are so kind of self-consumed and self-absorbed. We, we, yeah, we say we believe in Jesus, but functionally, we live our lives as if everything's about us. We're on the forefront of our minds. Our plans are what we schedule towards. So even posturing ourselves or, or even putting mental space into how can I live my life to help other people follow Jesus is, is not a thought I think that naturally occurs in our mind. I've, I've seen this in my own reality. If, I, if I'm not intentional, if, I, if, if, if I'm not letting the word of God confront me and, and seeking to repent and confess my sin, I just go throughout my day like, I'm living a pretty good life. And What's for dinner, Stephanie? You know, hope it's tacos. I love tacos, man. Just thinking about tacos. But I want to be creative. Like, I, I do. I, I true, I, in the depths of my heart, I do believe that, that there's nothing better than following Jesus. That he's, he's saved me and he's, bringing, he's doing like a work of freedom and joy in my life that I haven't found in anything else. I remember what it was like before I met Jesus. I was like overcome with guilt and shame and I was angry and I was lonely and I, I didn't love and then Jesus saved me. And like everything changed. And everything is continually changing. Like I'm finding this new freedom in Jesus that I didn't know everyone was there five years ago. Like I thought I knew Jesus and I thought I knew the gospel five years ago. I was ordained January 12th, 2014. Or 15. 14? 14. <laughs> I thought I knew the gospel, right? I'm giving my life to help other people believe in Jesus. And I'm looking back five years ago and I said, this guy's an idiot. And I'm going to say the same thing when I'm 45, looking back at this young idiot. And friends, that's, that's, I think, as we behold him, as we come to him, as we believe in him, but we have to be mindful of this and intentional in this. Otherwise, we'll just fall back to kind of this self-absorbed, self-consumed lifestyle, where basically what we believe about Jesus is just it's kind of for our afterlife, but it doesn't really affect the day-to-day of, of our inner workings and the relationship that we have with one another. And for the brief moments that I've said, I, I've, I've done this, or God has presented an opportunity and I've been aware of it and I've shared the gospel, man, there's like no other joy than this, is there? And I just think, oh gosh, I just, God, please, I want more opportunities like this. But then I forget and I get consumed by nachos or, you guys love, I, you know I love food. <laughs> but naturally our, 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 our hearts aren't captivated by Christ. We're not motivated out of a love and a deep concern for others. 
so we don't call others to follow him. But thanks be to God that it's not up to us. Thanks be to God that God uses sinful, broken, selfish sinners like you and me, even in the midst of his great plan. I don't know how it works. I don't know why God decided to do that. It seems like a, not a very smart plan. Because <laughs> I look at my life and it's like, I don't know how good of a witness I am at times, Jesus, but you're so gracious and good to me. Thanks be to God that it's not up to our seeking or our goodness or our efforts or our striving or our good works. Jesus pursues us. Jesus calls us. He was the Lamb of God who was sent by the Father to take away our sins while we were still sinning. While we were middle finger to God and, and reject you. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. He was sent to give his life as a ransom for us, to rescue us. He was unjustly tried and killed. An innocent man who was flogged and beaten and mocked. He was cast out of the city so that sinners could be brought in. He was rejected so that sinners could be accepted. He who knew no sin became sin in our place so that we could experience his righteousness and his acceptance and his perfection. Not because of anything we do, but simply because of faith. Jesus' disciples hear that he calls to himself. They'll, they'll be with him for three years and they'll see these great works that he does. And they'll come to greater and greater believe in this Jesus. Yeah, they, they say that they believe in him or they found the Christ, but they'll learn more about what that really means and see his identity more clearly. And they'll see that this Jesus was killed and crucified on a, on a Roman cross. But as he promised, he would raise again on the third day, that death would not be the final say in his life, that the stone would be rolled away, that on the third day he would raise from the dead victorious over sin. He would deal a death blow to death in his resurrection. And he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. The, the Bible says more than 500 at a time. And he sent the third person of God, the, the triune God, the Holy Spirit, to empower these scared, broken fishermen to be bold witnesses, to give their life, to die for him. And the same spirit that Jesus sent to his disciples, and we see the church explode in the, in, in the book of Acts, is the same spirit that as we receive Christ, comes into us and empowers us to be his witnesses, who makes Jesus real in our life. We're able to behold Jesus and see something in him. Naturally, we could maybe drink that water fountain and really taste sewage. Maybe in our natural sense, that's what we do. But the Holy Spirit comes into our life and changes our taste that we find Jesus is this delicious water. He gives life and there is nothing like him. And friends, if you are a Christian in this room, and it's not because you are so great or grand. It is not because you were born to a family of faith. It's not because you had a great friend. Ultimately, it was because Jesus called you and used those things by grace to root your faith in him. Amen. And just as he called to Simon and said, Simon, you are, you are Simon, the son of John, but you should now be called Cephas. Jesus has come to us and given us a new name. He's given us a new identity. He has changed the trajectory of our life. We are no longer enslaved to ourself and to our sin and to the passions of our flesh. We are called to do the works that he has called us to do. He has prepared us for them and we can walk in them by faith with anticipation because we have a good dad who loved us and we're part of his family now. Uh, as I was studying and reading this, it, some commentators noted in this name change of Simon to Cephas, 
And in the Bible, sometimes God will change the name of someone uh, to denote a special calling. But it seems the focus here in which the author of John is drawing us to is less on what the name change means. But the focus is on Jesus who knows people. He knows Simon. He knows Nathaniel. He knows Philip. And he not only sees them, but he calls them. And he redefines their identity, their purpose, the whole trajectory of their life. The, the, this name change is highlighting the fact that Jesus makes people what he calls them. And friends, if you're a disciple, you have been found by Jesus. He has called you. He may have used a friend or a preacher or a family member or a book or some combination of all of that, but he has changed you and you're no longer defined by your family of origin or what you do or your background or your career or your works. You're defined by him. Your identity is in Christ. You're his. This is a sweet news to us, friends, isn't it? And I think it's by coming back to this continually that this changes us and wants us, causes us to want to be witnesses. When I was first kind of starting preaching and, and pastoring, I thought people would just do what I said because I told them. So if I just said, hey, Nick, you need to share the gospel, he should do that because I told him. And it's biblical, right? We should be sharing the gospel. That's crazy, isn't it? We should be making disciples. That's what Jesus tells us. I shouldn't have to tell you, but sometimes I feel like I do. But I think that can be kind of unhelpful because I, I don't think we primarily want to be witnesses just because I tell you. Certainly we want to be obedient to Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But the way in which we go about that is not in kind of a white-knuckling, I just need to try hard and... Uh, I'm going to be motivated out of a sense of pride or guilt or if I want to be a good Christian, I know I need to share the gospel. Or if I want to look good in my church, I need to be making those disciples. And you can do it out of that motivation, but I don't think it'll be as freeing and authentic. I think what really changes us is beholding the grace of God and coming to Jesus and beholding his beauty and being amazed by him, that it overflows in being his witness. Now, that doesn't mean we never share about Jesus unless we're wowed by him because, at least in my experience, that I'm not always wowed by him. And there are disciplines. There are acts of obedience. But fundamentally in our hearts, we need to understand that's where we need to come from, motivated by love and by grace, not by fear or pride or shame. <coughs> this is why I think what the Bible does to us again and again. Before Paul gets into commands in the book of Ephesians, he spends chapters just describing the gospel before he gives any commands. He reminds them that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You followed the course of this air. You were enslaved. By nature, you were a child of wrath. Man, you were just following whatever you wanted. The passion of the flesh controlled you. Uh, you were dead in your sins. You were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. You carried out the desires of your body. If you would have followed this path, hell would have been your prize. Yet, God in his mercy, being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us, he caused us to be born again. Not by anything we've done. He, he did this. By grace, you are saved. The father loved you and gave up his son to die in your place, to take the punishment you deserved 
on the cross to take your shame and your sin upon himself, to take your clothes that were filthy and dirty and to give you his robes of righteousness. He sent the spirit to make you a new creation and change your heart to cause you to actually see him for who he is and to hear his call and to love him and believe in him. And it's from this reminder, it's from this beholding that we are empowered to go. I heard one pastor say that we behold, as we behold the lamb, we become like the lamb. You want to grow as a disciple maker? You want to grow in someone who shares the gospel? Give yourself to understanding it and experiencing grace. I think that's the, that's the principle here. As we see and believe, then we invite others to come and see. It's from this discovery and continual discovery of who Jesus is and the lavish grace he has bestowed on us that we grow as witnesses. This is what John will continue to show us in his gospel. Later in John chapter 4, uh, there's a woman who Jesus meets at a well. And after meeting Jesus, he leaves her water jar and she goes into town and she says, come and see. Can this be the Christ? And John records later that many Samaritans came to believe because of her witness, because of her testimony. The foundational principle that we see in this passage and what we see in the scriptures is the advancement of the gospel happens by new disciples making more disciples. New followers of Jesus bear witness of Jesus to others and turn those new disciples repeat the process. See how this works. And friends, I want to press into a call that I made last week that a goal or an aim of, our, of us, and I want us to take an individual commitment to this this year, is to start building a relationship with one person if you're not already doing that. That we would want to instill a culture of discipleship in our church where we are regularly meeting with those who don't yet know Jesus and inviting them to come see. Sharing our stories with them, learning about their stories. Inviting them to consider the claims of Christianity. What friends or family members are in your life that you could invite to come and see? This could simply look like questions like asking them about who do you think Jesus is or asking them to share their story and in turn you can share your story where you highlight Jesus as the hero. It can look like having spiritual conversations in which you highlight the uniqueness of the gospel. That the gospel is a completely new way to live. It's not religion. It's not your religion. It's something completely new and different. This might look like working really hard and being the kind of person that others want to ask what makes you tick. Why are you the way you are? Why are you so peaceful and kind? And you can highlight that it's the person and work of Jesus that's in me. Christ is in me. And, and brothers and sisters, you might not have a desire or a calling or an opportunity to preach, to stand up in this moment like, like I might do or Mike Will or Nathan might do and teach the scriptures and publicly proclaim the gospel. But you do have a responsibility to be a witness. In, in the area of life that you're in, in your workplace, in your family. You do have people around you like Philip and Andrew that may be family or friends, might be coworkers or neighbors or bus drivers who don't yet know Jesus. How might God want you to be a witness to them? Church, let's seek to be disciples who don't simply learn about Jesus. And we get really satisfied and content that yes, Jesus died for me, but it never moves past us or through us. Even our own salvation becomes very selfish and self-serving. But we seek to, as we dive into the gospel and learn more about his grace, that we see that Jesus gave his life for others. So if we're not giving his life, our lives for others, what does that say about our belief? 
If we claim to be a disciple of Jesus and we're not helping other people follow Jesus, what do we mean by being a disciple? Let's be a people who believe and behold Jesus. And as we do this, become like him. And as we become like Christ, invite others. Come and see. Come and learn about Jesus. He changes everything. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. That while we were slaves to sin, you being rich in mercy caused us to be made alive in Christ. We have been saved by grace. Father, while we were sinning, you loved us. You set your gaze upon us. You found us. You called us. You gave us a spirit to respond in faith and repentance. Father, help us not forget this reality or become callous to our own salvation. Help us not to become callous to the truths of the gospel and the wonder of your grace and your mercy. Father, forgive us for being so selfish and self-seeking, for being so self-centered. Father, I thank you for this church in which you have encouraged me greatly in what the gospel means. Thank you for bringing individuals and families and couples to this church that show me what Jesus is like. I've seen the grace of God in them, transforming them. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you for strengthening my faith. Father, I ask that you do this with, with the rest of those in this church. That we would be a church marked and centered by the truth. Behold the Lamb who takes away our sins. Father, I pray as we sing this and as we hear this, it would stir our affections for Jesus. Father, we do want our city to be transformed. We want it to be renewed. We want a great work of the gospel to bring about flourishing and prosperity and peace and and new life and freedom. Escape from shame and bondage and abuse and life and joy and freedom in Jesus. We want to see this, Father. So, Father, we ask that you would come. Jesus, come. Jesus, do only what you can do. We trust and we submit to your leadership. The results are up to you. But help us to be your witness as we behold you. I love you and I thank you. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.